If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Will you pray with me? Holy One, our governor has urged people of faith to ask God to heal those who are sick, comfort those who are hurting, and provide renewed strength and wisdom to all who are managing the effects of COVID-19. So, here we are. But lest you get the impression that we think of you as a genie in a bottle here to grant us three wishes, we've added a few commitments of our own. We do indeed ask you to heal those who are sick, while we dedicate ourselves to preventing more people from getting sick by wearing a mask, loving from a distance, and washing our hands. We ask you to comfort those who are hurting while we follow up with cards and flowers and a meal train. We ask you to provide renewed strength and wisdom to all who are managing the effects of COVID-19 while we listen to the medical and infectious disease experts and follow public health guidelines to the best of our ability, regardless of inconvenience, annoyance, or sacrifice. Forgive us, Holy One, for thinking that individual freedom is more important than the words of Jesus interpreted for this particular moment. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to wear a mask for one's friends. We trust that you are working in ways we cannot see, Holy One. We know you are counting on us to do our part too. We pray in the name of love itself. Amen. The sermon this morning comes from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
and people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. On August 1st, 2020, the Sarah K. Evans Plaza opened in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina. It's likely this is the first you've heard of Sarah K. Evans and have no idea why there now exists a plaza honoring her life and work. I didn't. Reverend Dr. Courtney Bugs gives us a few more details. Evans, known formerly as Private Evans, is now 91 years old and reflects on the seemingly unremarkable event that has led to public recognition almost 70 years later. In 1952, Private Evans was on her way home from her first military assignment when she refused to move to the back of the bus. Upon refusing, she was taken to jail and detained for 13 hours. Evans sued the Interstate Commerce Commission for discrimination. Despite a judicial victory in November of 1955, The ruling was not enforced until 1961. Meanwhile, in March of 1955, a young black teenager, Claudette Colvin, refused to give up her bus seat to a white person, having been exposed to the actions of Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman. Colvin was emboldened to resist the injustice she experienced on the city bus. As a result, she was handcuffed and arrested. And like Evans, her story was hidden until recent. Before there was a Rosa Parks, the civil rights icon attributed with prompting the Montgomery bus boycott of 1955, there was Sarah Evans and Claudette Colvin. These trailblazing young women set in motion that which would be later attributed to Parks. Their names are scarcely, if at all, associated with the civil rights movement yet their actions precipitated one of the most pivotal events of the time. Evans preceded Colvin, who preceded Parks. Rosa Parks, of course, preceded those closer in time to our present day, whose names we are familiar with. As the quote widely attributed to artist Jay-Z goes, Rosa Parks sat so Martin Luther King could walk. Martin Luther King walked so Obama could run. Obama's running so we can all fly. And of course now we say, Rosa sat so Ruby could walk, so Kamala could run. Arguably there is no better explanation of the text this morning. They are preparers of the way, path straighteners, if you will, to borrow from the prophet Isaiah, which is what Mark does to open his gospel. He borrows from Isaiah, along with a few other excerpts from scripture. Verses two and three of the first chapter of Mark are prophecy he attributes to Isaiah, merged with a verse from Exodus and another verse out of Malachi. Theologian Robert Miller explains that Mark 
chapter 1, verse 2 combines Exodus and Malachi, which Mark rewords with one crucial alteration. The messenger in Malachi will survey the way before me, meaning God, whereas in Mark, the messenger will prepare, prepare your way, meaning Jesus. This is a good example of retrofitting, changing the wording of the prophecy so that it can be applied to Jesus. Furthermore, Dr. Miller writes, Mark 1 verse 3 quotes Isaiah 40 verse 3, but changes its meaning in two ways. This is a little tricky if you don't have the text in front of you, so grab your Bible and hang on. First, Mark exploits a syntactical ambiguity in the Greek version of Isaiah, which reads literally, a voice crying out in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. The ambiguity lies in the function of the phrase, in the desert. It can modify either voice or prepare. The context in Isaiah clarifies that the prophet speaks about a road across the desert on which the glory of God will travel with God's people as they return to Israel from exile in Babylon. Mark relates the prophecy to John the Baptist who preached in the desert. In Mark's context, therefore, it must be the voice, not the road that is in the desert. Mark affects a second change in the meaning of Isaiah's prophecy by retrofitting its last line. Isaiah speaks of a way for God, whereas Mark makes this into a way for Jesus. All of which is to say that Isaiah, Malachi, and whoever wrote Exodus probably didn't have Jesus himself in mind when they were writing. Mark does some fuzzy math to get us there. That statement would bring a charge of heresy in some circles, but I think this is only because some people think Jesus needs protecting to be put in a plastic bubble or hoisted onto a pedestal for him to be relevant and remarkable, which I think is strange, given that we know even death could not silence him. Jesus does not need us to treat him like a delicate flower or believe that passages in the Hebrew Bible, which speak of a Messiah, are specifically referring to Jesus. The truth is, as Dr. Miller says, Jesus had help fulfilling prophecy. And this is always required. Help, that is, help is always required to change the world. Every movement needs those who function as an advance team, that is, those who prepare the way for something beyond the present state of affairs. And the present state of affairs isn't great. War, famine, drought, flooding, global pandemic, income and wealth inequality in America is obscene. This week alone, the U.S. hit record deaths and hospitalizations from COVID-19. According to the National Centers for Environmental Information, as of October 7, 2020, there have been 16 climate disaster events with losses exceeding $1 billion each. Altogether, nearly 3.8 million people had lost their jobs permanently by September of 2020. 
optimism that we can turn this ship around is a challenge for most of us, even for preachers, and we are professionally obligated to hope. The distance we have to close, to go, to, the distance we have to go to close the gap between where we are and God's justice seems overwhelming. The good news is that we have a story for this. Things weren't great in John the Baptist's day either. Israel was under foreign control, and the religious leadership was, in some cases, fraternizing with the Roman government. The gap between the rich and the poor was devastating. But this did not lead John to despair, but rather lit a fire to start the work. He tells the people that hope is on the way and calls them to repent and be baptized, which is a sign of the renewal taking place in their hearts. And so it must be with us. As we move deeper into Advent, let us consider for whom we are the advance team, so to speak, for whom we are preparing the way and straightening the path. As I wrote this sermon, the little faces of our congregation's youngest members carouseled through my mind, their foreheads and eyes peeking over the balcony and the pew backs. How might we clear the path for them? How might we lay the groundwork for changes that they will bring to fruition? How can we prepare their way? The answer comes from today's scripture too. Repent, repentance. As we consider what it will take to transform the world, we know that it begins by changing our own hearts and minds. This was the message Jesus heard when he went out to the desert to hear John the Baptist. And we know it deeply impacted him because repentance is the buzzword in his inaugural address, his first sermon. Jesus proclaims, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Theologian Marcus Borg reminds us that in the Hebrew Bible, the word we translate into repentance means to return, to embark on a journey of return to the homeland, the holy land, where God is. That is the metaphorical meaning of the holy land, of Jerusalem, of Zion, the temple, all symbols for the presence of God. To repent is to embark on a journey of return to God. Repentance also has a second resonance that flows from the roots of the New Testament word commonly translated repent or repentance. Its Greek roots mean to go beyond the mind that we have. Repentance, then, is about change, to turn, to return to God and go beyond the mind that we have and see things in a new way. To bring repentance a little closer to our own vernacular, it might be helpful to think of it as the willingness to say, I'm sorry. 
Those are words so many of us often struggle to say, and perhaps we would rather stay in the quagmire of really breaking the word repentance down in the theological sense. But admitting to being wrong, doing wrong, missing the mark, it seems to be hard for us to do. And our children are paying attention. According to the research of Dr. Harriet Lerner, the number one reason that children do not apologize and why children learn not to apologize is because it's never been modeled for them. Some adults feel reluctance to apologize to children because they think it undercuts their authority and makes them look weak or, and uncertain, when actually it models a stronger approach to the world that reflects a concern for fairness, and an ability to orient to reality. It shows children that adults can admit to being wrong without being a lesser person for it. Perhaps the most important way we can prepare the world for our children is to normalize repentance, normalize heartfelt apologies. Can you imagine if we could count on each other to acknowledge when we've messed up, to recognize when we've been short or dismissive or careless, to admit when we are wrong, misinformed, or have changed our minds upon receiving new information. From there, we might mend the relationship, stop unhealthy behavior, validate someone's experience, deepen trust, and affirm the values of fairness, graciousness, of reversing course because it's the just and right thing to do. Oh, the possibilities for our world if our children enter into adulthood leading, working, and living already with the gift of knowing how to apologize, how to turn around, how to return to God to go beyond the mind that we have and see things in a new way. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. We have our assignment, church. Prepare the way. Prepare the way. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Rev. Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are currently online only premiering at 11 a.m. on Mayflower's Facebook page. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.